Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. You know that Jesus was, uh, he was not a, uh, Jesus was not a, um, he was not a feather pillow. Jesus' primary goal was not to make everybody around him feel comfortable. I think we all realize that, right? I mean, there, there must be some connection between what he was like and the fact that he was murdered. Not executed, but murdered, if you study the law that they used to get him. And um, if you think about what people think Jesus was like, you do really think that most people do think that he's the velveteen rabbit. You know, that Jesus is everything soft and comfortable that we've ever wanted in a mother and weren't given. You know, or in a nurse and didn't have. <laughs> uh, if you've ever been in a hospital room. Um, And if you ever repeat any of the difficult sayings of Jesus, let alone try to open them up to a contemporary, to somebody that lives today, almost immediately their response is going to be, um, Jesus just loved people. Jesus accepted everyone just the way they are. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to puke. Jesus did not accept everybody just the way they are. Hate to tell you, he didn't accept the Pharisees just the way they were. You know, and even if you take the one that Jesus loved most, John, or second most, Peter, probably, was Jesus just accepting Peter just the way he was? <laughs> oh, man. Peter kept making a you-know-what of himself. And Jesus was not adverse to pointing it out. And even after his resurrection, Peter, I mean, do you love me? Lord, yes, I love you. Well, then feed my, Peter, you know, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I, well, then feed my, sheep. Peter. You know, three times, I mean, honestly, do you really need to repeat it three times? The poor guy feels bad enough as it were. Can't you imagine if he had had a wife what she would have said to him at that point? You know, why do you always have to take things so far? <laughs> you know? Look, Jesus is not a velveteen rabbit. Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And Jesus demands that we worship him. And he doesn't care whether you like it or not. If you don't like it, you will be consumed by his wrath and the wrath of his father. And we don't get it. We just think that Christianity is a self-affirmation project. You know, we think that Jesus came just, just wanting to affirm our snow cakeness. Our snow, what is it? It's not cake, what is it? Flake, yeah, snowflakeness. You know, and actually, Jesus did not come to affirm our snowflakeness. 
Jesus came to reveal his Father to us. And his Father is holy. And if we approach Scripture thinking that Jesus just wants us to like him, Scripture will make absolutely no sense to us. Scripture is not interested in how we feel about it, nor its heroes. Scripture presents to us truth. And, you know, you want a pastor who's attuned to your preferences and prejudices and fears, right? You want a shepherd who knows his sheep. And I know that there's nothing I can preach that sets your teeth more on edge than preaching authority. I know that. Partly because I know myself. And I'll sit in an elders meeting where we're having to decide whether or not, and and typically it's after years of working with people, and finally it's like, okay, I get it. They're in rebellion against God. Maybe we need to do something. Usually it's after years And I I will sit in an elders meeting and I will cringe knowing that it's not going to play in Peoria. You know, it it ain't going to go over well with... You know, he'll just accuse me of being a cult leader. I have these thoughts as I sit in elders meetings. Oh no, they're going to hate us even more. (laughs) You know? More people are going to leave this church and tell people that we're just ridiculously obnoxious, rigid, uh, unself-aware snow cakes. (laughs) And so I'll say things, this is true, I'll say things in the elders' meetings like, well, you know, maybe what we should do is um, uh, just let them go. Don't discipline them. Just, they want to leave, let them leave. And then you always have some obnoxious elder who sits there and goes, no, we need to warn them. And you go, oh, come on, if we warn them, you know what's going to happen. And they'll say, but don't, haven't, hasn't God called us to present a picture of the judgment seat of God to the people of this church? I would hope, sometimes elders are this obnoxious. They will sit there and they'll say, I, I hope that if I were that person, you wouldn't just let me go. And it's like, oh, please. <laughs> you know? And really, this is a lot of what goes on in elders' meetings. That's the discussion. The discussion isn't really about the person. The discussion is whether it's going to play in Peoria. Right? You know this. You've, you sit in the elders' meetings. Yeah. And all of us sitting there can think, You know, the most certain way for us to get better report cards, you know, has good attitude, right? (laughs) The way for us to get a better report card is for us to downplay what? All authority. Because authority is ground zero of the rebellion and hatred of the Western world today. And so if you can exercise your authority in such a way that people know you care about them, (laughs) okay, but 
your authority is hidden, that's the sweet spot. Because then you stand before God and he says, I find you not guilty of being a hireling because I could see behind the curtains that you really did care about them. You know? Or he says, badly done, you lousy servant. And that's what every elder has to face in an elders meeting when we're caring for the sheep. We're just constantly trying to figure out how we can get good press, play in Peoria, have people like us, and still be good shepherds. And so you have an eye on the world, and you have an eye on God, and you hope that maybe you can find a place to stand precisely in the summer center where you have some plausible deniability. You really didn't care what God think of you, but you don't have the bad mouth in you. And by the way, I'm not being hypothetical about this at all. This is precisely what we live with. Okay? I mean, it's true. Now, why am I bringing all this up this morning? Well, (laughs) have any of you noticed where we're headed in 1 Corinthians 15? Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in the middle of defending the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. We have about a chapter and a half left in this book. And in the second half of this chapter, he begins to wax, as Max says, elephant. (laughs) Okay, he begins to wax elephant about the doctrine of the resurrection. And he goes off about what is involved in the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And so what he does is he goes off with his vision. All of us have to have visions that motivate us. And what, what motivated the Apostle Paul, because why? Well, because he died daily. What motivated him was thinking of the resurrection. And so he gets caught up in going on about the resurrection, right? And so he's defending the resurrection of us. And in the middle of it, what does he say? Well, here's what he says. Now, remember what I've been talking about authority, okay? Okay? Here's what he says. He says, starting, this is the word of God, and it's eternally true, 1 Corinthians 15, starting with 21. He says, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. All right? As for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. You see, you can feel him get, getting caught up in the doctrine of the resurrection and the end times, right? You feel him getting caught up, and he says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted, EX, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Now I'm going to stop there this week, even though we have the rest of it up there. The Apostle Paul is defending the doctrine of the resurrection, and in the middle of it, 
he goes, he waxes elephant on the doctrine of the last things. And he presents us a picture of what's going to happen. Because it motivates him. He dies daily. He lives for that time. All right? And he starts by saying, for since a man, by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now, Remember I said that the the doctrine that we hate, ground zero of our rebellion against God, is the doctrine of authority, right? And right here, what do you run into? You run into the doctrine of authority. Do you understand that since by a man came death is teaching you that every single one of us is in Adam? And what does it mean to be in Adam? It means to be under the authority of Adam. We can't die in Adam unless Adam is our federal head. What is a federal head? A federal head is someone who represents every single person who has ever lived. Adam is all of our federal head. Adam is the federal head of every person who will ever live. Because it says here, for since by a man came death. Now, We read over this kind of thing, and because we're all rebels, we don't want to observe our own rebelliousness. And I always tell men who preach that what they need to do in their preaching is preach to their own rebellion. In the text. Find a place in the text where you don't like it. Then preach to that. All right? That's all a preacher does is he preaches to himself in front of you. Now, I don't like, as in Adam, all die. I don't like it, okay? I don't like the principle at the core of mankind for since by a man came death. Pascal didn't like it. Nobody likes the idea that a guy that lived thousands of years before us, when he sinned one sin, one by eating the fruit he was told not to eat, that he cursed every one of his descendants, There's no man who has ever liked that doctrine. We don't like any representation, let alone the representation of a man we've never met who curses us to death and damnation. I've never had somebody say to me, I just love the doctrine of the fall. Even Pascal, when he's talking about it in his pensées, what he says is, and yet without this doctrine, we do not understand ourselves He doesn't say, I like the doctrine. He just says, thank God that doctrine was given to us because without it, how would you ever understand how awful you are? So I suppose we love it, but we don't like it. We do not like having a federal head. Now, we can read over this, and, and you know, we're all chilled out, and it's Sunday, and you do spiritual things on Sunday, and have religious thoughts, and you you know, you blip over the spiritual book, you know, the holy book of the Christian tradition. You go, for since by a man came death, and everybody's yawning, right? So let me open up to you the fact that you really hate that sentence, just that one sentence, okay? Start with this. Why would it be Adam? Now, let me ask you a question. Why was it Adam that we died in? You know, we read over this sentence and we just, we're blithe. We're just so superficial. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, we just read over it and, well, that's the Bible and that's what it says. And I guess that's all there is to it. The Bible says it and that settles it. The Bible says, you know, okay, so the Bible says it. So do you like it? Well, yeah, I like it. Everything the Bible says I like. Okay, okay, I know who you are. I know where you're coming from now. Let me ask a question again. Do you like it? Well, of course I like it. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't like the fact that God placed representation in man. (laughs) Why would he put representation in man? Listen, the center of feminism today is an attack upon the essential manhood of authority. Okay? It's not that woman doesn't have authority, but woman has a subordinate authority. And really, woman's authority largely depends upon the way that man carries his authority. Okay? If you're a mother, you know that you have authority largely in proportion to the defense of your authority by your husband. And that's why it's hard to be a widow. All right, do we all understand this? God has ordained that there be a sexual content to authority because, why? Because he is the father. He is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And so, fatherhood is authority. And you can lie about it all you want to your wife and your children, and it doesn't change it one bit. Fatherhood is authority, because authority is the fatherhood of God writ large across creation. And I don't say this because I think you'll like it. (laughs) I mean, honestly. I just got done telling you I know you all hate it. I say it because until you learn to submit to the authority of God, you do not know God. You cannot know God, let alone worship him and love him, if you don't submit to his authority. Okay? The very first confession after the resurrection of the Christians in Acts was, he is Lord. And Lord, I hate to tell you, it's authority, (laughs) you know? And so when this text says, for as since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Everybody in the church today takes the second half of both of those statements and dismisses the first half. Nobody wants to know where sin and death and damnation came from. (laughs) What we want to know is Jesus. And so everybody thinks that we can be rebels against authority in our lives and still have the representation of Jesus Christ. You know? I choose Jesus and to heck with all that other stuff. But you can't have it. You may not have it, you shall not have it, and you will not have it. No one who rejects the authority of God written into his creation knows God. 
Because we don't start with loving Jesus. We start with seeing the rebellion that is at the core of who we are and hating it and grieving over it and running to Jesus. And so if you don't know that Jesus is an authority, if you don't know that the Ten Commandments has absolute authority over the president of Indiana University, you don't know God. God is not interested in what President McRoby thinks of him. Okay? It don't matter. He is not bothered. Okay? Because God is a self-contained being, and he's not looking for his wife's approval. <laughs> you know, all you men married, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, we all want our wife's approval. So did Adam. That was his problem. And so if we were to be honest about this text, what we would say is, well, you know, there was a way of speaking in the ancient world, and it was patriarchal, and it focused on men because women were ignorant, they weren't schooled, they weren't educated, and, and you know, men had the, the heat and women had the cold in their, in their guts, and, and the philosophers this, and and I get so sick of it. The conceit of the modern. And so, you know, if we were to write this, we would say, as in Adam and Eve all died, so in Christ, Christ, all will be made alive. You know? As in Eve all died, and Adam, because he didn't rebuke her, and he should have stopped her. You know? Or as in Adam, all men died, and in Eve, all women died. I mean, come on, be honest. If you were to write the Bible, you know that not being an ancient, stupid person, bound up in a patriarchal mindset, you know, you'd write it different, right? Right? I hope you have enough self-awareness to know you'd, you'd write it different. But then when it comes to Jesus, you don't want to write it different. You just want to say it doesn't matter that Jesus was a son and a man. You know, he could have been a woman. You know, as in Adam all died, so in, so in Jesus, sexless, androgynous, metrosexual Jesus. You know, his sex doesn't matter except, I mean, it would have been unseemly at that time to have the Messiah be a woman. But if you watch how he treats women, I mean, it's pretty close to him being a woman, really, you know. And I'm telling you, I've heard it my whole life. And I am, I'm utterly revolted by it. <laughs> you know that, that God was bound up in what he could have in his, his word. And Jesus was bound up by what he could do because it was an ancient patriarchal culture. And so, of course, it was Adam and then it was Christ. And so you have all these people who reject the federal headship of Adam who say that they accept the federal headship of Jesus Christ. Right? 
You listen to him for 10 years, he'll never talk about Adam being a man and that that was essential to his representation of us. They'll change all the language of Scripture about the race being called Adam in Hebrew. That's what it is in the Old Testament. Every time you read man, it's the word Hebrew, Adam. Okay? And we just dispense of all that stuff. Just get it out of here because we're evolved. (laughs) You know? And then we want Jesus. But you can't have Jesus if you won't have Adam. Because without Adam, you don't even begin to know yourself, and you don't know why every single time you try to honor God, it fails. And if it doesn't fail every time you try to honor God, I want to meet you. Because that will give me some hope about myself. God has written the fatherhood that he has essentially, archetypically, into his creation. It doesn't start with you, and it doesn't start with your dad. It's God who is the father. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading, you'll see this. It says in verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to his God and father. Do you, know, do, do you notice that, huh? Do you notice that? It says his God and Father, right? Huh? Is that what it says? Read it. Is that what it says? What does it say? Uh Uh-uh, that's right. No, that's right. What does it say, people? Come on. If you don't know grammar, I still think you might know what the definite article is. It says the God and Father. It doesn't say his. It doesn't relativize it by saying that Jesus had a special relationship with God. God is the God, and he is the Father. Do you see that? And listen, God has set up his universe in such a way that everything that exists proclaims his Father authority because he is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And because his son said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Do you know that I've watched over the course of my lifetime, and I have noticed that in the church, in the church, almost nobody prays to the Father anymore. But when I was a kid, everybody prayed to the Father. Why don't we pray to the Father anymore? It's because we're the product of a rebellious feminist culture. That's why. And you say, no, no, I had a good relationship with my father. And I say, yeah, but you really want your wife to approve of you. You say, oh, no, no, my wife had a good father. And I say, well, then you want your daughters to approve of you. Oh, no, 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 my daughters are actually Christians. And I say, well, then it's because you don't want the people in the congregation or the people over for dinner to disapprove of you. But I guarantee you that if you could just immediately do a statistical analysis of how people speak to God today, I would say that three quarters, 75% fewer references to the fatherhood of God in prayers is what my experience is. And then we have the audacity to think that this text 
is no problem to us. We're just on board with it. And we're all on board with authority too, right? I mean, what a joke, right? You know, we're not okay with authority. I had a man say to me a number of years ago, um, he said to me, I submit to nobody but Jesus Christ. And do you know what happened when he said that to me? It was in the foyer of the former church I served. You know, when he said that to me, my hair stood up on the back of my neck. I thought I have never heard such a wicked statement from somebody confessing to be a Christian. And you think, well, what's so wrong with that? And I say, do you realize that if you say you will submit to nobody but Jesus, do you know who the one person absolutely certainly is that you don't submit to? It's Jesus Christ. And why do I say that? Well, because in 1 John it says, how can we say we love God when we hate our brother? How can we say we love someone we haven't seen if we hate those that we have? Well, the same thing is true with authority. If we say we submit to Jesus Christ and don't submit to President Trump or President Obama, we don't submit to Governor Pence, we don't submit to our teachers, our principals, we don't submit to the police, we don't submit to the law, we don't submit to our husband, we don't submit to our father, and we don't submit to the elders, and we don't submit to the pastors, and we don't submit to the older Titus II women at the church. Help me here. In what sense do we submit to Jesus Christ? There's no way. Listen, we all hate authority. And you watch the Apostle Paul here, and it's fascinating that as he waxes elephant about the end times, what's fascinating is he's like going off on authority. Have you noticed this? It's like he starts with the authority of Adam over the race. Then he moves to the authority of Jesus over those who believe in him. And then watch what he does. He says, but each in his own, and what's the word? Oh, for heaven's sakes, people. What's the word? But each in his own order. Now, why did I want you to say the word order? It's not a restaurant. I don't even see it up there. Can you put up each? (sighs) Thank you. Verse 23, each in his own order. What does the word order mean there? Well, it opens up. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So in other words, our order is what? What's the word? It's subordinate to Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the order. And then keep going. Then comes the end when he, referring to Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now, what rule and authority and power is he speaking of there? He's speaking of Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
right? Can you feel it? He's going to abolish their authority and power. It's going to be over. And he doesn't care whether or not we approve, right? He will abolish all rule and all authority and power for he must reign. (laughs) Oh, man. The Apostle Paul is waxing elephant about authority. Do you see this? And listen, it's a riff that you can't resist. Because if you resist it, you don't know God. You cannot be a Christian without delighting in authority and submission. In other words, you can't be a Christian without confessing that you are not God, that he has made us and not we ourselves. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What does it mean to be an enemy of God? An enemy of a God is someone who refuses to pray to God, our Father, who art in heaven. I once was talking to a loved one of mine who had been asked to pray at a table by my mother. And after uh, after the meal, I asked if I could talk to this person. And I explained to this person that the beginning of spiritual life is having a heart that cries out to God, Abba, Father. And that I was concerned that this person never would address God as Father. And you know what happened? Very gentle, very kind, very loving. This person absolutely went emotionally berserk and proceeded to rant and rave about how they would never address God as Father. Never. Why not? When I first went into the ministry, I was in an ordination exam where somebody wanting to be ordained as a pastor who's completed seminary gets up in front of you and You try to poke holes in them to show that they would not be a faithful shepherd. And the first thing that this person did was read out loud a short summary of their statement of faith. Now, it will indicate to you my rebelliousness at that time that this person was a woman. And so she read her statement of faith, and in her statement of faith, she consciously excluded any reference to God as father but also any use of the male pronoun. So if she ever referred to God, she would say, God's this, God's that, never him, never his. So when she got done, I stood up and I asked her whether she was opposed to using the word father to refer to God. And she said, well, you might not be aware of it, but a number of us are not comfortable with referring to God as Father. Remember, I talk about the conceit of the modern. That that she thought it was my ignorance. That she thought I didn't know how difficult it was for her to refer to God as Father. 
that I could have listened to her give her testimony and her statement of faith and not know that. And so I said, no, actually, I am very aware, and that's the reason I'm asking the question. Oh, a principle? She was being examined for ordination, and she ran into a principle. Not a stupidity, a principle. Are you all with me? You realize when she said, I don't know if you're aware, but, what she thought was that I was just trying to process my feelings. You know? And so I said, yes, as a matter of fact, that's why I asked that question. She said, well, a number of us have not had good experiences with, with men and with fathers, and so we object to referring to God as a father. So then I said to her, well, our Lord commanded us, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And the Westminster, or not the Westminster, but the Apostle Creed begins, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And I quoted a number of other places in Scripture and in our, in our, in our, in our uh, confessions. And when I got done, she just stonewalled me. No, nope, not going to do it. This was in the Presbyterian Church USA, and there were people in that presbytery that were leaders of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Madison at their headquarters. And you know, I was the only vote against that woman being ordained. And you watch the Apostle Paul when he's defending the doctrine of the resurrection, which it seems to me it's a bit of a stretch to go from the doctrine of resurrection to waxing elephant about authority. And it's just the most natural thing in the world to him. He goes off on the authority of Jesus Christ, trumping every human authority and power. And then he talks about the authority of the Father over the Son. Do you see that? For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put under subjection, well, now let's go up to 24 where we have the first occurrence. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he has said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And here the apostle Paul does, he gives us this beautiful picture of Jesus handing over the authority to his father. You know, I wish like anything, and I don't know if this has application, I think it does. I would give anything for my father to be in this church and to be able to lead you. Why? Well, because it's, it's such a glorious thing for me. And if you think I'm flattering you, I'm not. I'm just speaking truth. And what does every man who loves his father want to do? He wants to show him his work and give it to him and have it honor his father. I was talking to David Abassara this last week. He was up doing what David Abassara does. (laughs) (laughs) You know... David Abbasara. Do any of you know David Abbasara? He's this monster of a dude. 
and it helps that he's half Arab and half white. And he just is a hawking mass of manhood. And he was up at the Michigan house to take out trees and limbs. I have a video on my phone right now that I took of David splitting the wood when he was done. And I mean, honestly, it's just like the most awesome thing of manhood you've ever seen in your life. Mike, he didn't break the splitting mall. Mike says every time he worked for Mike, he broke his tools. That's David Abassara. And I was delighting in David Abassara. I was delighting in the fact that we have been privileged by God to have a real man who's a pastor of one of our churches. And I stand in front of David Abassara with his massive chest. And how many sons does he have now? 47? <laughs> and, and so I was talking to him, and out of nowhere, we're, we're out on the patio, and I'm standing, you know how I stand right in front of you, and I'm looking at him right in his face, right? And I say, you know something? When you get to heaven, you will meet your father. And who was I talking about? I wasn't talking about God. It's talking about my father. Because I saw in David what my father had done. Do you understand this? What do we want? What we want is to do the work of our father. And this is what Jesus did. He was in the Garden of Eden. He said, oh, father, if it be possible, take this from me. And nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How can you be a Christian and reject the authority of fathers and not pray to God, my heavenly Father? And I know that that woman was speaking the truth and saying that she and others have suffered at the hands of their fathers but you know, if she could hear me saying this without feeling I was being insensitive, my response, if she said that to me, you know, fathers have caused us pain, my response would be to look at her and go, duh. <laughs> I'm being caused pain right now by the father of our nation. As a matter of fact, ever since he took office, every day he's caused me pain. And even if we took Twitter away from him, he'd still cause me pain all the time. <laughs> I mean, why don't we vote out of existence the office of president of the United States? I've had nothing but pain most of my life. And then how about pastors? Think of the pain pastors cause you. Right on, John. And then you think of your husband. And there is not one woman here who is godly, in other words, is honest, who will not tell you of the endless pain that you have caused her as, as her husband. 
since when is authority only authority when it's perfect? God is the Father. And it does not matter how much we hate authority, it doesn't matter how much we try to pull it down off its pedestal, we, we forget that God's the one that put it there. And there is sexual content to authority. And the mother who has authority in her home has father authority. She is the father. She stands the father in front of her children. Why? Well, not because her husband's a good leader, but because God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And every authority is fatherhood. Motherhood's authority is fatherhood. And when God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at the end time, sum up everything, all the accounting is done, then Jesus is going to lay down before his Father all the work he's done and all the glory that God has given him. Jesus is not going to be saying to God, can I hold on to some of it myself? I think that divinity is something to be grasped. Jesus will be perfectly content in his equality with his Father to lay everything at his feet. Listen, we have to make our peace with the fatherhood of God. We have to make our peace with the fatherhood of God. And we will never make our peace with the fatherhood of God until we love the fatherhood of that flesh and blood idiot that gave us life, sitting down the pew from us. And he is an idiot. And he's much more of an idiot than you know. He's not just an idiot, he is, he is sinful. Jesus had to die for him. You stop judging your father and you begin to love him. And you love him with knowledge. I am not asking any child here to refuse to see the sins of his father. But let me tell you, it's not until you see the sins of your father and love him and respect him that you have begun to learn the nature of authority. And the same thing is true of you wives. Your husband is an idiot. And he's wicked. Because there's never been an authority in this world that is not stupid and sinful and wicked. 
And it's your privilege to be humble and love him and submit to him and honor him. Okay? I suppose it would be easier if I were a woman up preaching this stuff to you. You know, it would probably go down easier if I was a woman telling you to submit to your husband, right? (laughs) But unfortunately... Well, listen, I don't mean that. I'm very happy with the way God set it up. I don't want to posture as one of these dudes that says, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it this way because I know what idiots men are. But nevertheless, that's the way he did it, you know? (laughs) Now, When God created the world, he said it is good. And every dispensation of authority did not come after the fall. It came before the fall because Eve was created second and Adam was first. There's nothing defective about authority. The only thing defective are those people who hold the office because they inadequately and inaccurately reflect the perfections of God the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And so, if you think that your father is an idiot, again, my response is a duh. As in, what are you, an idiot? Of course he's nasty. Of course he's stupid. Of course he's a sinner. (laughs) He's not even a sinner, he's a liar. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to love God or not? You say, well, it's not about God. It's about my father. I say, nope, nope, nope. It's about God. And you say, well, you don't know what my father did to me. I say, yes, I do. I've cried with you. Listen. Jesus is our example. And Jesus laid everything, will lay everything at the feet of his father. And he went to the cross because he wanted his father's will to be done instead of his own. And I tell you something, I'm enough of a Christian that there's nothing I want to do more in my life than to honor my father-in-law, Ken Taylor, and my father, Joe Bailey. I was watching a video this last week. It would have been my father's, my father-in-law's 100th birthday. And so they had a founder's day up at Tyndale House. And his son, Mark, got up and he, he gave this wonderful 28-minute talk about his father because a lot of the people at Tyndale House no longer know Dad. And at one point, Mark stopped and he read a letter that Dad wrote to Mom, who is still alive at 100 now. And it was a letter he wrote from Africa when he was having to be over in Africa. Uh... On a, on a business trip for Moody Press for their international literature arm. And 
mom and dad had 10 children, and they did not have anything. Financially, anything. And dad had just published his first book. And he was getting, I want to say, it was something on the order of royalties of $400. And so for the first time, they actually had some money that they didn't know was coming, right? And this was a huge deal to them. And in the middle of this trip, so Mark is reading this letter to Tyndale House. In the middle of the trip, uh, Dad Taylor gets word from the Evangelical Literature Overseas uh, office that they've run out of money and he's not going to be able to finish making the stops that he needs to make to help the people in, in African countries with their literature. And so he writes, and I, I, think, he, I think he addressed Mom as, uh, uh, do you remember, love? I want to say precious, but it wasn't precious. It was my, huh? Yeah, darling. Yeah, darling. And dad was not a demonstrative person. I don't know that dad knew that he had such a thing as emotions, right? But he called her darling. And so Mark is, is in control of his emotions and his life as any man I've ever known in my life. And Mark's up there and he starts to read this letter. And all of a sudden, Mark, Mark starts crying in front of his employees. Why? Well, this letter was this beautiful thing of dad talking to his darling about the fact that he, that he, he was not going to be able to finish the trip and that he really felt like he wanted to tell the office of the evangelical literature overseas to borrow the money to finish the trip because he really felt he needed to help in these other locations. But he didn't want to tell them but then he didn't agree with Hudson Taylor, but he did agree with Hudson Taylor, and he couldn't figure out whether he should ask them to borrow the money or not. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the letter, he starts talking about the royalty check. And you watch him as he all of a sudden, as he's writing, it occurs to him that this royalty check is the way that he could keep from having them borrow money and finish the work that God had given him to do. And he knows that his wife can't even buy jelly for her toast. And yet, all of a sudden, he, he begins to rationalize, and then he begins to argue with himself, and then he begins. And then he says, this gift I will give to God. And I hope, and you can just feel him saying, I hope, sweetie, I hope, darling, that you'll be with me in this. And I'm reading this thing. And I'm thinking about my life. And I'm utterly revulsed. I can't even conceive of a time when I have had the kind of battle that he had over money. And I look at that godliness and I think, imagine he was my father-in-law. You know, I have him for a father-in-law. It's like, I couldn't believe that God had blessed me such. And I thought of my own dad and his godliness. How could we not want to honor God? He gave his own son for us. 
How could we be caught up in rebellion? And you say, well, my dad would never do that. And I say, look, every single Christian man has been given gifts that are the occasion of my envy. What do I envy in David Abbasar? His chest! <laughs> and the chest is a gift to me from God. Do you understand this? His manhood! Don't tell me that your father isn't worthy of Ken Taylor or Joe Bailey. Of course he isn't. But he is. You say, well, my dad isn't a Christian. I say, yeah, but your father loves you. You say, no, my dad didn't love me. Listen, there is not a man who doesn't testify to the fatherhood of God. There never has been. And some men do decay to the point where their testimony is nothing but of the justice of God in condemning the wicked. I have known men like that. But I want to tell you, those men are rare. Listen, if you have a father like that, then I want you to love my father and my father-in-law. Love the men of this church God will give you a father. But listen, we have to love fatherhood. We have to love God. We have to love God. We have to love God as father, and we have to pray to him as father. We have to testify to his authority in every way we can come up with. We have to stop this stupidity of trying to pull down authorities to show how how smart we are, or worse, how wounded we are. Listen, I can point to people in this sanctuary right now who have been wounded worse than any other person in this room, and I know because I've cried with them. And let me tell you something. There are no people in this room who testify to their love for authority in God as much as these women. Don't you tell me that you've been hurt. Because I'll introduce you to somebody who's really been hurt. And you will be ashamed of yourself. Because they will ooze a love for authority. All right. I have to stop. But listen, thank you for letting me preach to you. Or another way of saying it is, thank you for letting me preach to me. <laughs> and listen, if you want to get to know um, my father or father-in-law, you have lots of opportunities. And uh, if you send me an email, I'm happy to send you a link to, to Mark's talk. It's so inspiring. And I'll keep track of who asks me for it and who doesn't. My dad would have said that. Sometimes he'd get mad at me and I'd say, Dad, I learned it from you. <laughs> you know, let's pray.